into this episode of the Digital Marketeer. I'm Stephanie Beach, your host. And today I have a great, I actually have two great guests today. Rob May, who is the founder and CEO of BrandGuard, and Deidre McGlashan, who is the chief marketing officer at BrandGuard. Hi guys, how are you? Good. How are you, Stephanie? Good, thanks thank for having us. Yeah, thanks for having us. Thanks for being on the show. Very excited for today's episode. So um, I would love for each of you to just tell me a little bit more about yourself and your career journey and, and how what brought you to, to BrandGuard. Do you want to start? Sure. Uh, I'm Georgie McGlashan. I'm the Chief Marketing Officer, and Rob brought me to BrandGuard. I heard about his technology, and I had the chance to meet him, and I just thought it was such a cool tool. I wanted to be a part of it. Uh, most of my career has been on the agency side. I've been at most of the holding companies, but I, my very first job in the industry was at a multimedia uh, software startup. So this will be my second startup and, you know, very early in life. And hopefully this is midlife. <laughs> <laughs> cool. Um, yeah. And so I got started, um, I'm a hardware engineer by training and used to do a bunch of computer chip design and then worked for a couple of startups and uh, in 2008 started a company and that became my first uh, tech startup. Uh, and since then, uh, have done, uh, this will be my fourth uh, technology startup. So I did uh, one in the cloud security and backup space, one in the sort of chatbot customer support space, uh, one in the marketing software combined with acquisition space. And now BrandGuard is the world's first brand governance platform. So it's exciting to have something that we can like evangelize and, you know, something that's new and, and something for which there's a good market need. Yeah, it's a really interesting and amazing technology. I haven't seen anything like it. And the way that it uses AI and it's so responsive, um, you know, I had the pleasure of having a demo a few weeks back and was really blown away by um, the capabilities and um, how it was built. So can you tell us a little bit more about BrandGuard and, and who your, your target clients are? Yeah, so the idea came about when we started looking at generative AI and how it could be used to create advertisements automatically. So if you think about trying to sell a product, say just a bottle of water, you know, if you can show somebody in an advertisement that looks like them, is in the location where they live, all that kind of stuff, we know that you know the ad resonates more, the conversion rates are higher, um, and that's on the image side. If you can use the words they use to describe it on the text side, that resonates as well. But it's expensive to do that at scale, or it used to be expensive to do that at scale. So we started doing that for Google and Facebook, where you could just iterate on thousands of hyper-personalized advertisements. And when we would show the technology to CMOs and marketing leaders, they would say, yeah, this is really cool, but I have to check all these because you know you, you just created 5,000 pieces of work for me. <laughs> and uh, I didn't know, because I'm an AI person and enterprise software person, I didn't realize how seriously people took, you know, their brand guidelines. Oh, yeah. And so if you ask ChatGPT, for example, to make you a slogan for a running shoe, it might sound very Nike-ish and you don't want that. And there's there's certain words you use, like to take the bottled water example, you might you might say purified or artesian, but you would never say filtered. You know, it, it just depends on what your brand stands for. Uh, and it's really hard to control those things in generative AI. So we built this tool to um, as a brand governance platform with the idea we would use it on generative AI. You're going to create thousands of assets and we're going to ingest your brand guidelines and previous content and understand it and um, be able to you know give you feedback on it and score it and tell you what's good and what's bad. And we took it to, a, started taking it to companies who weren't even using generative AI yet. And they went, oh, we already have this problem. <laughs> you know, just anybody that's creating a lot of assets, you know, anybody that's doing a lot of omni-channel marketing, um, you know, is is moving really fast. And so 
Uh, we sell primarily to um, you know middle size to large size agencies, and then and then large companies. Those are the companies that sort of have the need, have the complexity and the scale. Um, and and those are the companies whose brands are super valuable. And, and you know we've talked to companies that can literally quantify what they believe their loss in sales is when an ad goes out with the wrong font, mm-hmm. for example. And um, you know, and and I think over time this will become a be- best practice that, like many best practices, will work its way down the market. I think, you know, my my, my guess is in six, seven, eight years, you're seeing ten million dollar revenue companies say that they need a brand governance platform because, you know, in, in an AI world where AI is making execution and operations easier for everybody, it's going to make small companies look like big companies. Like things like your brand and the values that you stand for and the promises you make to your customers are going to just matter more and more than they ever have in the past. And do you think that it will, you know, how does that change the role of the creative agency, right? I mean, I know that having so many assets, it's so hard for people to make sure that they're checking off every single box and ticking off everything and everything's aligned and, you know, the font is correct and the colors are correct and, you know, the imaging and everything. Um, do you feel that maybe there's a need for this within, you know, the creative teams and, and the creative agencies itself to be able to just say, yep, we crossed our T's and dotted our I's and everything is good to go. Um, I feel like it's kind of a no brainer in that aspect, right? Yeah, what we found so far is working with clients and agencies that there's kind of two uses for it. One is in the creative team. So checking the work, think about it as a way to scale your best creative director so that they can look at more. Mm-hmm. Um, so a lot of times people use it so they have new designers on or even designers that worked on it before and they're doing maybe they're gathering all the stock photography or they're creating assets. So instead of doing the long list review and the short list review with the art director and the creative director, they can do the long list review with BrandGuard until it gets to a certain score, and then that becomes a shortlist review. Mm-hmm. So the designer's still doing two reviews. They would have done two reviews regardless, but the art director and the creative director are only doing one review. And so that opens up their space to think more for the brand and to come up with new ideas. And it just opens up a time for them. And then on the other part of the agency is the production side. So what happens is then it gets passed from creative to production. And as you know, they be, that's where it really becomes all those iterations for all the different campaign assets. You know, three approved assets or 10 approved assets suddenly becomes 50 or 100 or 150. And so for them, it's a real-time savings to be able to check those rules. Is it the right font? Is it the right logo? Is it the right color? Is it the right clear space? And so those are more of the absolutes. But then it allows them to, in a way, have a built-in quality assurance. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it it definitely like I feel like when you were giving me the demo, I was just like, oh my gosh, oh my gosh, oh my gosh. <laughs> like it was it was really, really amazing. I thought that it was so intuitive and so easy to use. And then, you know, the scoring, I mean, I was really kind of blown away by it and kind of like, well, why isn't everybody doing this? It's making their job easier, especially now when a media plan, you know. Back in the day, it was a handful of media. Now you have all of these different formats, all of these different sizes, all of these different screens and and um, different assets that you need for all for all of these different platforms. It makes it almost impossible. And, and you have to think like how much actually goes undetected that the human eye doesn't even really recognize, or you're just going so quick that you don't know that it's it's being approved incorrectly. A lot of this and basically, you know, all of it is based off of AI, which 
has been a hot topic, but very scary for a lot of people. Can we pivot a little bit and talk a little bit more about, you know, the history of that and and where AI came from? I feel as though many people either get it or are super scared about it. Yeah, so AI has gone through a bunch of waves and there are multiple ways to do AI. And the the wave that has been upon us since, well, really ChatGPT sort of popularized it, right? But um, let's say it's been upon us since maybe like 2016, 2017, uh, is a technology called neural networks. There's other ways to do AI, symbolic logic processing, Bayesian reasoning, evolutionary algorithms that evolve solutions the way evolution would work. Um, and those have all led to waves in the past. But this neural network wave, uh, came about because of a couple of things that sort of hit at the same time. So if you go back to the early days of AI in 1956, Marvin Minsky, who was a professor at MIT, gave this challenge to a grad student as a summer project and said, can you teach a machine to identify basic images? And he thought that would take all summer. Well, as of 2012, we were like 60% accurate at that. So we had, what is that, 40-something years, right? Um what happened to change that is between 2012 and 2017, we became like 95% accurate, like as good at humans as identifying these images. And um, and there were three things. One was neural network technology, which had been around for a long time, but didn't have enough data to feed it. Neural networks had sort of worked back to the, the front of the, the AI research stack. Number two, these things rely on a lot of data and there wasn't a lot of labeled data. And a group at, I think it was at Stanford, but some group had compiled the world's largest, like several million labeled images, which took a lot of time. Humans had to hand label them. Now you could use this to train a model and that wasn't available before. And then the third thing was GPUs, um, which are computer chips. You know, you have a CPU in your computer that runs like series of instructions, mm -hmm. right? You know, do this step, do that step, work through a math problem, whatever. GPUs run your screen, and the way a GPU works is very different than a CPU. A CPU does things in order. A GPU does one simple instruction a million times in parallel. There's a million pixels on your screen, and it just says, you know, every 10 milliseconds, what color should they be? What color should they be? What color should they be? Really simple calculation. Somebody around 2010 realized, huh, the way GPUs work is similar to how neural networks work. So if I could hack this GPU, which was designed to run your screen to train a neural network, I could do it a lot faster. Mm -hmm. And so the combination of those three things led to, they had this image challenge every year and suddenly it went from everybody getting incrementally, you know, half a point, one point better to somebody came up and got like 10 points better using all these methodologies. And in a couple of years, we were as good as humans. And, um, and so that just led to this explosion of reinvestment and interest in AI that has led to ChatGPT and Stable Diffusion and Dolly 2 and all these crazy tools that you've seen come about. And I don't think it's going away this time. You know, in the past, there were waves in the 60s, 70s, 80s, and 90s of, you know, AI followed by what we call AI winters. And I don't think we're going to hit an AI winter this time. Yeah. And, you know, it really is amazing because like I, I said, like some people are really nervous about it and it seems to be everywhere all of a sudden, but I feel like it's always been around. And it's always been used in different ways. Like I remember some of my first jobs, like, you know, working with, you know, language processing and just putting things in, inputting things into a system and, and seeing what comes out of it. And maybe it wasn't as accessible and maybe it wasn't as sophisticated, but there was always some type of 
AI behind the technology in advertising that I was using. What is the difference in generative AI and what are their core capabilities related to our industry and and digital advertising? The way to think about generative AI is neural network models tend to come in two categories, discriminative models, which discriminate between things. This is a water glass, this is a wine glass, you know, et cetera. And then generative models, which tend to create things. And um, you can think of generative models as like the reverse, create me a wine glass, create me a water glass, instead of tell me which one is which. Um, They're trained very similarly. You're given lots of water glasses and wine glasses. For generative AI, you're given lots of language. I mean, you know, GPT-4s read basically the entire internet um, that they they can download. Uh, And so um, the thing to, to keep in mind about it is there are and will always be limits to some of these things. Some of the limits are you know, the laws of physics, some of the limits are the the limits of intelligence and everything else. But one nice thing about working in the branding space is like, if you're building machine learning models to solve math problems, they're going to go the way that chess went, right? Like computers are way better than humans at chess. Computers are going to be way better than humans at math, even advanced theoretical math. But brands are defined by humans the machines can only get as good as the humans tell them what the brand is. Like the machine can't maybe able to come up with new ideas for like brand values you should adopt or directions you should expand it, but it can't tell you better than the humans who define the brand, what's on brand and whatnot. We can only replicate that judgment. So uh, brand marketing is a great place to work in an AI world because it's going to automate away all the boring tasks that super creative people don't like. And it's going to giving you the ability to create things and experiment and be more strategic and more creative faster and and define how the machines think about things. So it's a that's a cool technology and a good time to be in the space. Yeah. And I think if you think about the digital advertising landscape, this is the next evolution. So as you said, we've always had AI and machine learning in our digital advertising. I mean, it's been in for the last over a decade. We use it to optimize. We use it for A-B testing. You know, we have used it and it's been built into the technologies. But now with generative AI, we have a more creative capability. So you can, instead of a person creating the multivariant and having to come up with thousands or kind of that quite blocky DCO of here's the unit, here's where the image would go and here's where the text would go. Now you have the ability to create these personalized, customized units using generative AI um, for digital advertising. And I think for, for, for us in our digital advertising world, this is the new frontier. Yeah. And I feel like it's like such a great time too with personalization and all of these different platforms where it really makes sense to have something so bespoke. I think, you know, the difference is that it used to be expensive. It used to be, you know, ran by engineers and now it's everywhere. So, you know, what has made it so accessible and why is it everywhere now? And, you know, where do, where does that leave us in terms of the future? Is it, is it, going to be part of our everyday moving forward, do you think? It's very interesting. Well, I think OpenAI did a really good job of putting a good use case on top of GPT, which is their big language model that keeps getting more advanced. And um, people forget that GPT-3, which was what the first version of ChatGPT was built on, actually came out in March of 2020. You could only access it via the API. You had to be pretty technical to do it. But over the next couple of years, lots of tools were built on that. And um, and that led to a lot of learning, a lot of understanding of the use cases. They were, you know, in parallel training GPT-3.5, which was a step to GPT-4, which is the one they're on now. And so um, 
Part of the reason that it's everywhere is I think it's had more time than people realize to start to permeate tools. And then um, ChatGPT was just such a PR phenomena and everybody was so interested in really being able to communicate in natural language with this machine that I think that, um, you know, every media outlet at any level in any format in any country and like every channel was like covering it. And so everybody knows about it now. And, and like a lot of things that, you know, I think it's been inspiring to people to start to think about what they could do with it. And so it's, um, yeah, I think it's going to be built into everything that we do in the next five, six, seven years. And for the people that are a little scared, you know, what's your take and, and advice on how they should be viewing this? You know, some people are like, oh, it's going to take my job. This is the end of humans, you know, and there are some things that even I read or hear about. And I'm like, mm, that seems a little scary or maybe it's a little unethical. But I also feel that with new technology comes new opportunity. And, you know, there yeah. there's always going to, in my opinion, need some type of human element to some extent to just humanize things in general. So do you see it as the end of humanity or a bright new future? Um, so I'll give you my philosophical answer and then my pragmatic answer to that. My <laughs> philosophical answer is, um, you know, humans are currently the smartest animals on the planet. And, um, you know, there's a lot of other animals. Uh, we do mess with some of them for food or whatever, but like, we don't generally, we're not trying to exterminate the ants, right? We don't care. We'll let them do what they want to do. And so I, I don't know. I've been, at some point in coming decades, machines may be smarter than us. Um, I don't know that there's a reason to believe they'll be mean or that they'll even care. They might want to go off and think about things we can't even think about. So, so I'm kind of mixed on. I'm not a doomsdayer because I, you know, I don't know that it necessarily will want to do anything bad to us. And I still think it's a long way off. But I admit there is a small chance that that could happen. But I'm I'm an optimist, and the pragmatist in me would say like. It is so hard <laughs> just to do what we're doing, like sometimes to get the machine to solve certain problems um, for recognizing branded images in unique situations, things a human can still do like that, that uh, I'm not that worried that we're close to generative AI. I know it seems that way because you can chat with these tools, but they're not really generalized, flexible intelligences yet. Interesting. Do you have a take on it, Deirdre? Uh, yeah, I, I think I, I tend to agree. And the thing is, the the things that you would think would be really easy to solve because you're like, oh, a computer can do that is what we found are actually the hardest. And it's, yeah. it's the precision with which a human can see something. Mm -hmm. um, it's not necessarily the oh, let's use logo clear space. It might be 12 pixels. It might be 20 pixels. It can do that part of it. But what if it's on? Um, but how can it then figure out where is the logo and then how to remove the background? That's a lot of the work that we've been doing is creating those bounding areas for it to check. Whereas a human will just look at it and go, I exactly see where that logo is. And so we've been running into uh, some of the things that are taking us longer are not the conceptual things, but actually the more absolute things. And so that to me, as you know, as the newbie here, that to me was the most surprising is understanding kind of the limitations of generative AI because it's it, in its probabilistic nature, it sometimes has a hard time dealing with precision and understanding exactly what that is. That is very interesting and, and not exactly what I was expecting you guys to say either for, um, you know, how AI is, is coming about. So, you know, I guess with that, aside from those things, what are some of the other 
maybe issues or problems that you think we still need to solve for to make you know generative AI work for us or or work to the advantages that we need? Is there anything else aside? Like you said, you're kind of working on you know, figuring out um, how to kind of combat that a little. Are there any other uh, roadblocks that you've come up against that maybe were a little shocking as well? I think what I see mostly is that a lot of our clients and customers um, kind of, because it's so cool and you've seen it and you see how well it works, they like fantasize all the way to it can do everything. Do you know what I mean? And so I think for us, one of the things that we found is not necessarily a roadblock, but it's more of a rollout plan is, yes, we would love, so let's say it's a franchise, and a fran- maybe it's a movie franchise, and there has been a release every seven years, and actually the logo has changed with each release, and the character has changed slightly, but it's the same character. It's like, oh, the differentiation of all of those different characters, that that might not be a day one thing for you. I mean, is that that might still take humans for now. However, right. being able to, maybe it's not the character, maybe it's a logo. Being able to do the logos is something that's quite simple. And so I think for me, it's not necessarily roadblockers. It's more staging because we also have to understand that as the AI is learning, it's learning to be as good as a human eye right. as well. And in the same way, you wouldn't take some um, kid right out of college that, barely knows the brand and have them suddenly be the last person to look at every asset before approving. It feels a little bit because of the magic of technology and how much we all love technology and how much we believe in it. As an industry, we're all digital marketers, right? Um, I feel like the expectations are so high. They are. Yeah, definitely. And so with that, you know, from a marketing perspective, where do you think AI really shines and what are some of the most common applications for it where it's most relevant? What we think is people using it in different areas. One area is just in the ideation, like coming up with new ideas and concepts and just kind of as a creative director and a strategist, just stretching your mind and being able to see more things on a board. You know how they always work by putting things up on the board and looking at it together. So just, you know, they float up more ideas that way. Then if you move into generation, a lot of designers are using it for generation of the assets themselves. And then if you move down the kind of down the chain of how what happens in digital marketing, then you get to brand governance. And so I think those are really the three areas we're seeing marketers engage with generative AI most right now. Yeah. I mean, and some I will create a media plan and all of that, but those tend to be much smaller companies right. who are, you know, like a single shop or a D2C. But I, you know, when we think about um, medium enterprises, big enterprises, it's usually in those three areas. Yeah. And that makes sense. And, you know, thinking about what I use it for and I don't use it all that often, but trying to tap into it and get more familiar with it, it's it's similar, like content ideas and, you know, um, getting stuck on something and trying to like brainstorm things. And sometimes being a small business, you don't always have the luxury of, of getting into a boardroom and, and brainstorming with a bunch of different people. So I, I personally have found that that has been helpful, but, you know, I was just curious to see if, if there was other use cases that maybe I'm not thinking of that I can take advantage of as well. Um, <laughs> I think, I mean, if you think about the creative suite, that's really where it is. But I think a lot of people are just using the business tools. I see more and more people using AI to clean their email box. Just a lot of those operational efficiency things. I've got one friend who works with engineers as well, and he's a marketer and he sometimes struggles 
to understand what they're saying, but he doesn't want to slow them down. So what he's found is that if he records, if he uses an AI note taker in all of their meetings, and then he puts the body of that work through a, like a Claude, then Claude will pick out key themes and help him crystallize and also help them crystallize it as well. And so those sorts of uh, more operational ways, I think, are just business things that anybody can use, not necessarily yeah. specific to marketing. Yeah, that's that's pretty interesting too. Um, and you know, I I ask people that all the time, like when we talk about AI and stuff. I'm like, well, what do you use it for? How do you use it? Because the ideas and the possibilities seem to be endless, and and it seems like people use it for many different things, and it's been helpful. So that's really great. I guess also, you know, ethically, everybody thinks of the worst case scenario, and and you know. Is there ethical considerations that arise when using this in advertising? And are there any ways to kind of mitigate those biases? I think there are. You know, if 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 you don't remember the story, just Google Microsoft's Tay chatbot, T-A-Y. The stuff that, you know, they put that on the internet on Twitter and it was supposed to converse with people. And in like a matter of moments, it became, you know, racist and hateful and everything else because of the things that people fed it. And um, so you have to be careful uh, anytime using these tools of the data sets that you have, the bias that might be implicit in the data set. And, um, you know, you, there's a lot of privacy issues. So if you go to chat GPT uh, and ask it to write a poem about Taylor Swift running in Nike's drinking a Red Bull, well, Taylor Swift, Nike and Red Bull don't like that. Um, and, uh, you know, particularly if you're going to create images of that, you know, they, there's a lot of legal issues and ethical issues about who owns those likenesses and and that imagery. Same way, if if you're having AI do creative work, can you can you file trademarks and copyrights and patents and those things on the stuff that it creates? Uh, and the the rules are going to have to change a lot uh, over time. So, but you know, I think it's important enough technology that you can't really sit and wait on all this to be resolved. I think you have to get in, get your hands dirty, and if you have to sandbox it in some way, then then maybe you have to do that depending on the nature of your business and how aggressive you can be with some of those things. But uh, yeah, there's going to be so many issues, and and I don't know that we're fully prepared to think through all of them. And I'm going to counter your Microsoft Tay story with the fact that at the roughly the same time that that was released onto Twitter, and you're right, became a racist, horrible thing within hours. Um, the same technology, which is in Bing, was released in China, and the product there was called Shao Shao Ice. Bing is ice in Mandarin. And so there, they fed it good data. They wanted it to thrive. And so once again, we always talk, you know, Rob tells me a lot about, you know, how much data is necessary for this model training. So they fed it good data, but more importantly, they monitored it. Yeah. And so they they kind of watched it grow. And Xiao Big, I think is Xiao Ice, I think is still intrinsic in a lot of their content. Um, she became a celebrity, she became a chatbot, and then she even became a um, weathercaster on one of the stations. She became a, a life unto herself. And if you think about it, it was exactly the same technology at exactly the same time. And in a way, if you think about AI technology almost like it has to be raised. It's almost a bad is a good example of bad parenting versus good parenting. Right. Yeah, that's that's a great analogy. <laughs> yeah. Um, that's really interesting. And and that would be a pretty cool case study if anyone put that together. <laughs> you know, both simultaneously being launched. And you are right, you're only as good as your data set. 
um, end of the day. And, and you're monitoring and you're training because you have to, yeah. you would never send a school, you never send a kid to school and never do a parent-teacher conference, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, very true, very true. And how do you, um, so what are the potential challenges that you see with generative AI um, coming into existing advertising workflows and, and different technologies? Are there any challenges that kind of pop out to you or anything that you've come across with that? The biggest challenge we found is that most of our customers and clients think that it's adding another step um, without necessarily recognizing that it's actually everyone, everyone's doing the same step and it's actually saving probably the senior reviewer a step. And it goes back to that long list review versus short list review. That designer is still going to be reviewing twice because they have the long list and getting to the short list. But that art director or creative director will only need to do one. And so they're like, oh, I don't want to make the designer do it. It feels like another step without necessarily putting together that it's saving them a step. Mm -hmm. And that's where the savings is, because then they can go ideate a new campaign, uh, work with the strategist to come up with some new concept of high value to their particular client. So I think it's a perception thing, mostly. Interesting. And with that as well, you know, I was at a conference not that long ago for a lot of news publishers. And there was a series of roundtables and one roundtable that I was at was about generative AI in the news. And it was very interesting because, you know, some of these news outlets were saying how their reporters are actually using um, AI to, to write articles or to do research. Um, and then like validity and accuracy and timeliness kind of came into the picture of this. So, you know, with brand guard, it might not necessarily uh, apply, but being so knowledgeable in the space and being so knowledgeable in AI, you know, do you think that something like accuracy and, you know, validation is something that will be eventually written into the script? So if people are using this for news or research or tell me, you know, what's happening in the news today or tell me, you know, the worst thing that's happening in the world, you know, it's not necessarily going back to maybe World War II or, you know, uh, something that's not really valid where people are reading something and maybe not putting the two to two together. But, you know, do you do you see that that is something that could be an issue or do you see that there's solutions that are coming for that? Yeah, I think there's a lot of companies that are emerging that do similar things to BrandGuard in other areas. So, you know, it's really challenging to build good generative technology that doesn't have any errors because of the fundamental way that the technology works. And so you need a filtering system for the stuff that comes out. On top of that, it's you, it's hard to teach these machines every brand and all the intricacies and everything else. So again, better to build a governance and filtering system on that. You're seeing that in other areas. There's a company that we're familiar with called um, Reality Defender. And what Reality Defender does is they sell a tool that looks for deep fakes. So, you know, the idea that you can make a, you know, you, you, you could take a Joe Biden speech and a Donald Trump speech and you could have the each guy say the other guy's speech and it would look for real. And, uh, and people be like, you know, why, why are they saying the thing that goes against their, you know, their core beliefs or whatever, but it would be really hard to detect. Reality Defender detects those things. And so they make sure that if you're the CEO of a publicly traded company, you can very quickly see a video that emerge, that comes out on YouTube of you saying like, you know, we're doing a stock buyback, so it's going to go up or we're, you know, we missed our earnings, so it's going to go down or, or whatever. And they can say like, that's false, you know, um, 
So, so I think a lot of these organizations will employ tools like this because they're realizing that the explosion of content that's coming can't be checked by humans. It's it's got to you got to have AI driven solutions for governance and accuracy. Yeah, interesting. Um, I'm going to check out that company as well. I haven't heard of them, but that's pretty cool. And you know, what would you suggest be a good way for people to start to familiarize themselves with AI from a business perspective, um, to not be afraid of it and to kind of understand it a little bit better. I I do two things. I I put um, it's important enough that I put a couple hours a week on my calendar to go around and play with Chat GPT and understand what it's good at and what's bad at. So when you have to write um, a tagline or a slogan, when you have to write a blog post, maybe when you have to draft an email try to use it. Um, it won't always be great, but sometimes it'll surprise you. And and so I, I would do some of that. And I would do the same thing with images, you know, playing with Midjourney or Stable Diffusion or Dolly 2, one of those tools. And then I would try to take a look at, you know, a lot of these startups that are coming up that do various types of uh, marketing related AI work and see if I could incorporate them slowly into my marketing tool stack. And I think what I'd add to that is just the base tools that you use most likely have some sort of AI plugin, like Zoom has an AI recorder now, uh, Microsoft has Copilot. So just in the tools that you use, start engaging with those because you're using the tools anyway. So why wouldn't you do that so that you could start to see what they're like? That to me is a really low barrier way to do it. And it's simply usually flipping a switch in the application you're using itself. Yeah. Yeah. I noticed that um, Zoom had added that in as well, um, which I thought was pretty interesting. Uh, and, you know, sometimes I sit on calls and I'll see things pop up and it'll say, oh, you know, we have a AI note taker or a question, you know, um, uh, capture where you can kind of write in your question and it'll kind of uh, send it in or whatever. But um, it's very interesting how all of a sudden you're seeing all of these different AI tools and technologies and add-ons and plugins kind of pop up everywhere. What do you guys think, each of you individually, is the, is the future for AI? Um, I would love to hear your perspective uh, for BrandGuard, like where where is the future of BrandGuard going and, and what's next for you guys? And then in general, like where do you think this technology is going? You want to do future brand guard and your future first? Uh, sure. So, so future brand guard is super exciting for two across two dimensions. Number one, we get asked to do a lot of things that we don't do today that we're working on. So, you know, when you think about what we do, we make sure that things are on brand, that they meet your style guidelines and all that kind of stuff. We get asked to do things like, um, can you make sure this doesn't sound like anything a competitor's put out? Can you, um, you know, industries that market to children and have special marketing rules maybe that they have to meet or industries like pharma, consumer finance. We're coming up with models that are going to help screen for all that and move those processes along faster. So so I think you'll see, you know, looking for trademark and copyright violations and the stuff that comes out of generative AI or even comes out of humans. So the models that we're going to build and the stuff that they're going to be able to do, the ability to govern all this is going to grow. And that'll help with brand consistency, revenue increases, you know, all this kind of stuff that companies are, are, are thinking about. The other thing that's more interesting is towards the end of next year, we'll be in a place where we can start to help companies move beyond just governance, but into expanding and understanding and managing a brand better. So that's what this can become, right? Ultimately, we are the best company in the world at teaching machines to understand brands and branding. And that as a base can lead to lots of different tools and applications over time. 
So you can imagine a time where your brand has five key brand values, and we sort of treated those equally from a governance perspective, and you decide that you want to go after a new customer segment that you don't totally currently market to. And we could tell you, oh, well, for that, you might want to accentuate these brand values, and we could help you do it, you know, and help you write things and tweak your governance algorithms. And, and so that's really exciting, I think, from the brand guard perspective. Uh, from the AI perspective, like you're going to see a lot more automation of many, many types of tasks. Uh, there's a lot of things that AI could do today that the only reason we can't do it is we don't have a labeled data set to train on and people are building those data sets for those kinds of things. And so as those data sets get compiled and people do a better job of capturing data to train models, you're going to see new kinds of models to automate, predict, classify all kinds of, uh, all kinds of things that are going to make our jobs easier. But I, I don't know that at least in the next five, six, seven years, I see any of the human jobs go away. If anything, there's going to be more around training and deploying AI, governing AI, teaching the machines things. So I'm I'm pretty excited about what's going to happen in the economy over the next decade. Yeah. yeah and I think we're, you know, we're still in such early days. I think that as we move forward, it'll just become more and more a part of our lives. Everybody will be using it. It'll almost be sim seamless. I mean, I think about where we are as the first days of spell checker. Do you remember when spell checker first came? We all thought it was magic. <laughs> like suddenly all our spelling got better yes. and our third grade teachers would be really proud of us. Yeah. So, and we had to get used to using that. Now, I don't think any of us could imagine typing anything without spell checker. And right. so I, I think that used to be something that you could turn on and off. It wasn't. Right, exactly. Yeah. Remember? Yeah. yeah. Because it freaked people out. <laughs> yeah. Like, what's this squiggly line? <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I, I do. I think the same thing, you know, um, not that I'm in the space anywhere deep as, as you guys are, but I think that we're going to start seeing it more and more. You know, I think we are a little far off from a vanilla sky-esque type of a, a scenario, um, which I think is what people are so afraid of. But I, I do think that it's here to kind of help our jobs be better and help us be more efficient. And like I said, I think with technology comes jobs and your job might change, but there's always going to be a need for a human element. Like somebody has to feed the machine information in order for it to be what it is, right? And without people and those data sets and building those data sets, it wouldn't even exist. So how is it going to, you know, take over us, but you never know, I guess. <laughs> Check back with us in 20 years, right? <laughs> yeah, right. Well, this was really amazing. I really appreciate your time. Thank you guys so much. Um, I always like to end our episodes with two fun questions. So I'm going to ask you both. We'll go one at a time. Um, what was your first job? Uh, my first job was at a hamburger chain called Rally's. Oh, what did you do there? One of the, one, one of the double drive-throughs. Uh, you know, they trained me up on everything from the beginning. So cashier, grill, French fry stand, uh, everything. But uh, yeah, it's it's always always good to have a job dealing with the general public. I <laughs> agree. Yeah. Yeah. How about you, Deidre? My first job was working with children, uh, babysitting, teaching summer school. But my first uh, paid taxable paycheck was working in a pharmacy. Oh, Wow. Restocking, yeah. helping the pharmacist. I learned a lot more about pharmaceuticals than I ever thought I needed to know. I'm very good with generics. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. If I ever have a question, I'll ask you. Um, and if you guys could do anything in the world, a different career, pie in the sky, money doesn't matter, what would it be? Hmm, probably play piano in a dueling piano bar. 
Oh, that's what I'm so going to do when I retire anyway. Yeah. That's excellent. Do you play that. piano? I do. I'm I'm not good enough. I'm competent. I'm not good enough to play in a bar like that. But with a you know year or two of practice, I could get there. Yeah. Have you ever been to the dueling piano bar in New York, New York, in Vegas? I have. Yes. It's one of my. Uh, but let, let me tell you where the best one in the country that I've been to is Savannah okay. Smiles in Savannah, Georgia. Really? That is a fantastic piano bar. Yeah. He also bought there. Has to go. Got heavy talents. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Too fidgety. I just do too many things. <laughs> Seriously. How about you, Deidre? I, I think I'd be in hospitality. I love bars, restaurants, service, hosting people, cooking, flavors. Um, I think that that's where I would be. I put myself through college working in bars and restaurants, and then I found marketing. But if I had never found marketing, I'd probably still be doing it. Wow. That's really interesting and amazing. Um, thank you guys so much. This was really informative. I know I learned a ton. The explanations that you guys gave um, were also amazing. Very easy to follow for a very complex topic. So I appreciate that. And thank you very much. Um, where can our listeners find you guys if they're interested in learning more or working with Brandguard? You can find us at brandguard.ai or you can email us at contact at brandguard.ai. Wonderful. Thank you guys so much. Thanks for Thanks having so us. Thanks so much. Thanks for having us, Stephanie. Mm-hmm.